This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's my pleasure, pleasure to uh, introduce David Lansky, CEO of PBGH. David, I'm going to leave it to you to introduce um, how PBGH is serving all of us and what you do. Thank you so Thank much. You, Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Terry, and thank you, Dr. Stobo, for the invitation. Uh, I did enjoy hearing the previous panel because they certainly teed up all the issues that I want to tee up, um, and I will probably try to just take as short a time as I can, given the lateness of the day, to flag a few themes that we're concerned about on the purchasing side and hopefully have time for some discussion with all of you. And I, I will, I'll, I'll try not to be as heavy-handed as I'm inclined to be at the moment. I just got a text. My mother has been readmitted, readmitted to an academic medical center. Um, in Boston, the Brigham. Those of you probably know the Brigham. And uh, I'm having a six-month battle with the Brigham over some of the, uh, the pathologies of academic medicine, I would say. And it comes for me as the third in a sequence of family members who've been in academic medical centers, and the, the risks of overuse are being realized in my family's experience uh, frequently. My dad died at the Tulane Medical Center in 2003. He... Um, had a terrible stroke, which was an unfortunate, obviously terrible event. But then subsequent to his stroke, there was just a succession day after day of overtreatment, frankly, of attempts to do things that were really unnecessary when he was well past the point of any recovery, um, that the whole family had to really work to get the system to put the brakes on and deal with the family in a compassionate and healing way, given the circumstances. Uh, my wife was recently admitted to UCSF um, in the emergency room, and she spent her whole time there telling them not to do things she didn't want done. And now my mother's in the situation in Boston, where for a persistent GI bleed in a 92-year-old, you're all probably familiar with this problem. But at some point, you wonder, is this cycle of every two weeks being admitted to the hospital, transfused, endoscoped, et cetera, the right way to treat a 92-year-old woman who's, uh, who could probably find a better quality of life? So I open that, and I'll tell you a complimentary story from the purchaser point of view. Those were the patient, consumer, family point of view. I talked to one of my member companies yesterday, a very large you know, industrial company, um, with many hundreds of thousands of employees, who said, you know, frankly for us, this company, um, we read the literature that folks like you all produce, which keeps telling us that 30% of health care is waste and unnecessary care and can't be justified. And then we look at our conversations with our partners in the delivery system who are aspiring to reduce the rate of growth in spending to something like the cost of living index. And I, this company, is saying to myself, there's 30% waste there. If they can't find it, I will. And I'm going to go out and do what I would do as in my own organization to root out the patterns of misuse or overuse or unnecessary services. So I would challenge you all as you think about the opportunities for innovation and self-critical analysis in, in what you do to open up the widest blinders and say, really, if we think our literature tells us there's 30% of unnecessary care, well, where is it? And what can we do to address it organizationally? So that's sort of the thematically. And I think this one company I'm mentioning is actually emblematic of many of our member companies. And as Terry suggested, I'll give you a flavor for who they are. You see it's quite a range of organizations. Calper is really the biggest single member. Walmart also very large, almost the same size as, as um, Calper's. And you see most of these are national companies. So they have national concerns about where their employees are getting their health care. Uh, they work with their health plan partners of the kind you heard on the last panel to try to orchestrate the care. Uh, but as I'll mention in a, at the moment, they don't feel like that process is working very well. And the good news for you, to balance the bad news with the good, is they really want to talk directly with the delivery systems because they believe you have the opportunity to truly manage care, improve quality, achieve better outcomes, and manage affordability. So the frustration they have with the lack of success at managing costs and quality in the system is now mirrored by an enthusiasm to work directly with, with you. And many of these companies are now doing that. I'll also just highlight that up on the right there is Covered California, the California Exchange, which is an affiliated member of PBGH. And the thing that's interesting about that is that they see themselves now as potentially another big purchaser, not just as a marketplace where individuals can come and get coverage, but also as an organization which will go into the marketplace and demand quality, accountability, and transparency of you and others uh, on, on behalf of the population in California that they're going to help cover. So they want to work with PBGH and these other large corporations as a partner in driving a market toward value and affordability. 
So we have a vision statement. We're actually in the middle of revising this. But the general idea here is we want transparency about cost, quality, and outcomes. And we want consumers to have incentives and information to make good decisions. And we want providers, you all, to also have information and incentives to make good decisions. So we see two parallel streams of signaling that we want to send to you as the people paying the bills um, about improving the consumer's ability to make decisions and the providers in the same direction. When I tabulate what these big companies, for the most part, are saying to us about their healthcare buying experience, obviously they see the cost trends not abating very significantly for them. They are not very satisfied with quality, and they don't have enough transparency into quality, so they don't really know where it's better and where it's less good. Cost and quality, as you heard in the last panel, are not closely related. The tools they've deployed into the marketplace, pay for performance, consumer-directed healthcare, and so on, hasn't really moved the dial particularly. Um, their expectation that their carriers, their health plans, will fix it is disappeared. None of our members think their health plans will solve these problems. They think the health plans are important, they're valuable, they're partners, a lot of roles they play that are important, but they do not look to their health plan to solve the affordability or the quality problem anymore. They don't think managed care or even ACOs or accountable care is particularly per se a solution. Um, they have been disappointed in the level of effort they see from their health plans and their delivery system partners in trying to solve these very serious problems. They feel like they wake up if they are, for example, Target, Walmart, and Safeway, three of my members, bitterly competitive in their market for customers, for products and services, tremendous cost pressure on them every single minute of every single day, for better or worse, but the reality is that's how they experience their daily business existence. Then they look at their healthcare systems they work with, and they don't see nearly that same level of either anxiety or creativity to really uh, innovate and compete with each other to produce a better quality service or product. So these companies, who are the classic capitalist companies in American economy, um, don't see the same level of, of fervor in improvement and redesign and innovation in the uh, healthcare system that they see in their own industries. They don't. They think they're generally sympathetic to health reform. They think it's a good thing to get everybody covered. They think some of the tricks of health reform are good things but they don't think it's going to slow the cost curve. So as I'll conclude here today, we're doing quite a few things to try to address cost as part of a reform and policy strategy. And they're very worried about consolidation. <clears throat> so the flip side of ACOs, while everyone understands care coordination and integration is a good thing, um, the market experience of our member companies has been every time two hospitals merge, every time two physician groups merge, every time a hospital buys a physician group, price goes up, period, always. So as long as that's their experience, value doesn't go up, quality doesn't go up, patient experience doesn't get better. We have no measures that tell us that happens. We have lots of measures that tell us the price will go up. And the price often goes up 30 and 40 percent. This is not 2 percent or 5 percent. So consolidation, while it has important theoretical benefits, has not shown us to have efficiency gains or quality gains. So our challenge to those in favor of ACOs and accountable care is show us you're delivering better quality care better integrated care, better outcomes for the patient, and that it's saving money. Then we'll be absolutely enthusiastic, but we haven't seen that yet. So the employers are really reconsidering their role, as I've hinted. The old days of writing a check to a giant carrier and having the insurance company figure out a network and figure out price and figure out the benefit design, that's gone for these very big companies. It's still important in the overall market, but for the very big employers, that's not how they're thinking anymore. And frankly, a lot of employers, to the question that was raised in the last panel, are wondering whether they should remain in the health benefits business forever. And a lot of our members, if you ask them, actually, I think I have a slide. If I have, I'll show it to you. There it is. Um, if you do a national survey of large employers, um, last year, 23%, this year, 26% say we won't be offering, sorry, 23% say they will be offering health care 10 years from now. So imagine that, hypothetically, 10 years from now, the 74% saying they intend to be out follow through on that. And 160, 180 million Americans who now get their insurance from their employer don't. What would that do to your organizations, to the flow of patients and revenue, insurance, whatever? Or maybe it means a rapid transition to a single-payer system, which might on paper sound good. But imagine, given as you observe Congress operating today, what that process will look like. If the employers literally, if in five or ten years the employers just say, we're done, we're going to write a check for $2,500 apiece to our employees and wish them well, what will happen to American health care? Purchasers of care, they understand workers and their families and their experience. They actually do try to do wellness programs, health improvement programs, and so on with the employees. They have a positive agenda. 
They can influence some consumer behavior by the way they set prices and contribution levels and copayment levels. Um, they can be active purchasers. They could come to the UC system and negotiate a deal for episode care, for cardiac services that would be high quality, accountable, good care. They can really get close to the delivery system. So that's an opportunity the purchasers bring to the conversation. They can pool lives to create a balanced force in a competitive marketplace against the other large pools of, of lives and resources. And they can be politically active. They can go to Washington or Sacramento and say, we need these kinds of changes in benefits and coverage and law and regulation that will facilitate an effective marketplace. So they're an important potential ally in improving the healthcare system, but they have some flaws as an ally. They only cover half the population. The public sector covers the other half. They're very fragmented. Even these very large companies don't work together often, and they represent a relatively small share of the total uh, population. Um, they do have mixed motives, both perceived and total. Ultimately, they have shareholders and a CFO who needs to manage what they're spending. So that is a motive of theirs. They also want productive and healthy workers and healthy families so those workers can come to work. So they have a mixed motive as they look at that, and that's perceived to be true by their employees. Some of them are very sophisticated, some are not. Um, they don't necessarily provide continuity over time, either in their own policies or in their work re retention of workers. And there is this issue of job lock, which is probably an unfortunate consequence of the employer role. So what would it mean for my members to stay in health care indefinitely? You'd have to be, as someone said in the last panel, at essentially cost of living plus zero as the rate of health care growth. And I'll tell you, the Massachusetts law that just passed was CPI minus 0.5. And as I told you my example from one company, he's really looking, he's explicitly in his ACO negotiation said, I want a negative trend commitment in my contracts. So they're not looking to mitigate the growth of spending. They're looking to reduce spending, period. And they're going to find a way to do it. They're going to build their own networks, find their own providers to achieve that goal. They want a durable reduction in the cost shift. Right now, all the margin in healthcare, all the profit, if you like, in healthcare comes from the commercial payer side, not from the public sector. So again, if you imagine the commercial payers, the Walmarts and Chevrons of the world walking away, there goes the margin that allows you to do much of anything creative and innovative and quality improvement oriented in healthcare. So they need to know that they are paying a fair share, even if it's a little greater share than the public sector, but that the shift is not going to be aggravated by these transitions. And frankly, in the current public policy debate, if you look at issues like raising the Medicare eligibility age, that's basically a cost shift. It's not an improvement in the healthcare system. So our folks are really looking to, for deep improvements in the, how the healthcare system is organized, not just moving who pays around, because usually it'll come back on them. Um, they want to keep offering good benefits. Um, they want to see with confidence what outcomes are they are getting for the enormous amount of money they're spending. They want to have a reliable healthcare system. If I'm Wells Fargo and I have a teller in Emeryville and I have a teller in San Bernardino, I want to be able to say to both of my employees, you're going to get good healthcare when you go in tomorrow for that problem. And right now, they have no ability to say to their employees in San Bernardino and Emeryville, you're going to get comparable care when I contract with Anthem or Blue Shield or whoever it is. So how do we give them reliable healthcare? Um, and they want to believe in a competitive marketplace that rewards innovation. So when you do come up with the breakthrough, the kind you've been talking about today, we want you to get recognized and rewarded for that and incented to do more of it, which we don't see in today's market. Uh, right now, we're not nowhere near there, and most of these are probably obvious. We're still running two to three times whatever the rate of inflation is in our cost. We're reducing coverage and reducing benefits right now, not su supporting them and supplanting them. We don't have good transparency into quality or especially price. The benefit value is actually going down by most employers. We have no data, access to outcome data that's valuable to us in judging where to encourage people to get care. Uh, we have high variation on everything we look at in our systems, and the marketplace is getting less competitive, not more competitive. So not a good situation today. However, we have clarity about what to do. So this is the, uh, the flip chart from our last board meeting, and you can see it's a nice straight line from the problem to the answer. Um, we're as confused as everybody else about what the right answers are. So what I want to do with a few minutes here is give you a flavor for the kinds of answers we're exploring, recognizing that we have no more precision than anybody else about the way to get there. I will just say that there has been a big shift over the years in what the purchasers think of as the pathway toward a solution. So 15, 20 years ago when PBGH was founded, uh, the plan was the vehicle for intervening in the marketplace, the carrier, the health plan, the payer. And by contracting, setting terms, measuring HEDIS measures, CAPS measures, all that stuff, somehow we would use the plans as a driver of change in the marketplace. 
Um, you see that was replaced around 2000 by an f- emphasis on the consumer as a shopper and give the consumer money and information and they would go out and make good choices whether they're choosing a health plan or an integrated system or a doctor uh, or a service. They would use an account of some kind and go make good choices if they had the right information. And now that has yielded to more of a, in a sense, a return to a provider-focused set of views, which is why I'm here today, to say to you, gee, can't we work more closely between the purchaser and the provider to craft a new model of care? And I'll give you a couple examples of how that might look. This is a survey that just came out um, recently of the best-performing or worst-performing employers uh, based on what they're spending for their health care. And you'll see the difference on the far right is about $2,000 a year in total spending um, by the, I think they had 45 or so benchmark companies who for four years in a row had outperformed everybody else in the country on what they spent on health care. And so the question was, what is it those folks are doing that makes them roughly 15, 20% cheaper than the -the run-of-the-mill employer in the country, and what could we learn from them? And what's interesting is, here's a list, and you obviously can't read the detail, of what the best performers in healthcare purchasing do versus what everybody else does. And if you look at the second column, the 2014 column, you'll see numbers like 47%, 44%. So about half of the best performers are doing the things listed on on the main slide there. About half of these things are payment reforms. They want to change how you get paid to reward outcomes and value. And there are a variety of techniques for doing that. And the other half are benefit design or consumer-facing changes, changing the way the patient, the family, makes decisions about their care. So these are the two principal strategies that the best-performing, in quotes, companies are using to achieve affordability and value for their employees year after year after year. So these tend to be the things that folks like us tend tend to look at. Um, those two strands comprise value purchasing, if you like. And there are some constraints on what we can really do as purchasers. We have our own flaws and faults, just like everyone else in the healthcare system. Um, we are not very well organized, so we're not, we don't present a massive purchasing block to the market to demand uh, pricing or quality standards. Uh, we are very fearful of disruption is the term of art in the employer world, and that's when you've got a tiny little benefits department of three or four people and 100,000 employees, and those three or four people know that if they tell you all you have to change your doctor next year, they're going to get 10,000 phone calls, and those three or four people don't want 10,000 phone calls. So they are very fearful of arbitrarily introducing change in this very important relationship between a family and their doctor or other aspects of the health system without an extremely compelling reason. So they tend to be timid in actually executing on the things that they say they think they should do. Um, They need, for that same reason, large networks. So they're very reluctant to say to a particular hospital or a physician group, we're not going to let our employees go to you anymore because you're too expensive or your quality is not good enough. So they tend to leave everybody in the network with very little differentiation over who the patient, the family can see. Um, And, of course, what the culture as a whole says, what patients believe, what consumers believe, and how they behave is a constraint. They have a a very strong belief in the relationship to their doctor. They're not comfortable making changes. They don't know how to scrutinize for quality when they're making those changes. Um, So, And they are timid in challenging what their doctors might be recommending to them, even if it's not warranted. So we feel like we need a multifaceted strategy to counter all these realities. And there are four things that our member companies and PBGH as an umbrella try to do. One of them is improve consumers' engagement, patients' engagement in their own decision-making. Second is to change how you all get paid. Third is to actually work with you to redesign care to our specifications. This is the boldest, maybe most controversial thing we do right now. And finally, we go to Washington and Sacramento and other places and talk about how the system, the environment itself, has to change. Let me give you a few quick examples in each, and then we can hopefully do a few questions. So we talk about in consumer engagement, what do we mean? We mean that patients and family members can choose high-quality, efficient providers. Well, who are the high-quality, efficient providers? Even if I ask those of you in this room who are in clinical care to identify each other, who is higher quality, who is more efficient, could you do it? Do you have a set of metrics? Do you have a set of data flows that would allow you to do that? It may be some folks in administration have some data which would let them answer that question, but they generally are not sharing that with me or with the employees of Chevron, Safeway, Walmart, whoever. So how do we motivate patients to select high-quality providers if we can't give them the data? We'd like them to receive services that meet evidence-based guidelines. Now, some new things, like choosing wisely, are very helpful steps in that direction where we'll have more public discussion about what is evidence-based care and how do I seek it out. 
So we're encouraged by that, and that's something our members spend a lot of effort trying to communicate to their employees. Uh, we want them to improve their own health behaviors and their own ability to self-manage. So a lot of our employers spend a lot of money and resources supporting employees with that. And then share decision-making and other models to be very active in their own care. Those are all things we do. The things in blue below that are some of the mechanisms we use to try to bring that forward into the market right now. Uh, and hopefully most of those things are familiar to you. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Um, reference pricing, I don't know if you already talked about this today, the CalPERS model. Um, so CalPERS, large state employees, many of your members, um, did a look at what they were paying for total hip and total knee replacement about four years ago. And they found that what they were actually paying, the checks they were writing, ranged from $15,000 to $110,000 to pay for a total knee or replacement in California. And they asked themselves, why on earth are we doing that? Why would we pay one hospital $100,000 for a procedure that we can pay $20,000 for a mile away with the same results as far as we know? This goes back to the quality and transparency issue. If we don't have any information saying Hospital A is better than Hospital B, why are we paying five times more for Hospital B? So they worked with Anthem up on the previous panel and said, you know what, we're going to allow the normal benefit package to apply up to $30,000 in cost. And if you want to go to a hospital that charges $80,000, you are free to do that, CalPERS member, but you're going to pay the $50,000 that's in excess of thirty. And we'll hopefully communicate that to you well ahead of your decision. But we want you to know you're making a very important decision, which is frankly coming out of the pockets of every Californian when you make that $80,000 decision. It's a moral stewardship question that you would make that decision in the absence of meaningful information that you're going to get a better result. So they did this, and as you see from this preliminary data, they had a very quick shift in where people went to get their operations, and they had a big total savings to the CalPERS program as a whole. So this kind of reference pricing is, is widely being adopted. Safeway stores, the employees of Safeway, did the same thing, but they took a low-cost service. This was colonoscopy, routine colonoscopy, um, and they discovered in looking at their own payouts, the checks they write, they were paying from $800 in some places for a colonoscopy to 7000 in others. And the employee, the checker at your local Safeway who needs a colonoscopy, they don't know. They go where their doctor says or they go where they see the sign on the, on the wall or they go where they see the ad in the paper, and they pay what they, they go, and Safeway pays the bill. It's a crazy system. Safeway said, all right, we'll pay up to 1500 You can go anywhere you want. The charge is under 1500 but if you go somewhere else, you're going to pay the difference. So this is a notion of using a benefit design, of using the consumer's own decision-making to send a signal to the provider community of what is reasonable and affordable in price setting. Um, the other, another consumer engagement strategy is to give people more information about quality. You've all seen scorecards on quality, both chart for hospitals and you know, HEDIS and others for, for um, health plans. Part of what we've really been emphasizing now is sharing with the consumer not just a health plan view of quality, but the provider level view. What is the hospital in that network? What is the doctor or the medical group doing to get good quality scores? So as we work with the exchanges, for example, let's make sure that 5 million Californians who go into the exchange can see what doctors and hospitals quality is like, not just that Blue Shield is better than Anthem on some measure. So we're drilling down to provider level quality. We're trying to create a marketplace where provider groups compete with each other on cost and quality so that medical groups across the street from each other wake up every morning saying, what can I do today to produce a better value service than that group across the street? And by allowing consumers to choose medical groups rather than choosing a health plan, choose medical group that gives me better cost and better quality, that creates competition to drive the attention of those of you in the provider community to try to do better. We'll talk for a minute about payment change. I'll just, this slide is just a little bit of a data slide. Um, this is total cost of care data around the state, and we're not identifying the individual groups, but you get the flavor that there is big variation in different geographies in the state of what the total cost, this is risk-adjusted total cost of care. And you see that within any geography, there's a huge, at least two to one, sometimes three to one spread in what one medical group costs to take care of patients versus another medical group costs. And again, if you were a purchaser of care, and you looked at this chart, and you had your employees in Pickett Geography, San Diego, Inland Empire, you would say, why would I let my employees go to one of these groups, which is at the top of that chart, unless they're getting a lot better care there? Wouldn't I send them a signal to say, go somewhere? And wouldn't I want to reward them with a payment model that recognizes the superior performance and efficiency of the better groups? So the kinds of things we do in payment reform, we're trying to migrate toward more global payment, and you've heard a lot about this today, bringing together you and your colleagues into 
into pods of various kinds where an episode or a bundle is the unit of payment or global payment for a population if that's possible. Encouraging medical homes, although frankly we don't do as much on primary care medical homes as we do on the intensive outpatient model. Um, where we're really trying to go after the very sick people and make sure they have comprehensive care management, wraparound services, um, and really aggressive primary care for people who need it. Policy work on payment reform and getting the health plans to adopt common payment models through the catalyst for payment reform. And we're doing a lot of work on registries, and frankly, with many of you, um, UCSF has been one of our lead partners in helping to move along a joint replacement registry in California, which I think I'll illustrate here briefly. So on the intensive outpatient care program, this started with the Boeing company in Seattle itself, the company, finding three clinics in the Seattle area and saying, we want you to change how you provide care. We will pay you differently. We'll give you a care management fee. We'll talk about a shared savings arrangement if you'll take the sickest Boeing employees and family members and really manage them well. And by doing that, as you see on this slide, they quickly achieved big savings. 20% uh, savings in costs, reduced hospital admissions, improvements in their SF12 scores, improvements in their patient experience scores, and improvements in their presenteeism at work um, just by doing the right thing, providing the right care model to those folks. So Boeing went out and did that directly. We then worked with them to bring that model to California, and we've had a similar experience in Northern California with very substantial reductions in cost and improvements in quality. And then we got a Medicare grant, a CMMI grant, to implement the same model statewide in California and in Arizona. So we now are bringing about 30,000 people into the same care model. So what's unusual about this, and just for you to be aware of it, you have a bunch of big employers, the Chevrons of the world, coming together saying, we're going to work with Medicare because we think the best way to get this model adopted is if the Medicare population does it, then everybody's going to do it. It's really hard for Boeing or Chevron to go begging each clinic to implement a new model of care. But if Medicare does it, it's very easy for Chevron or Boeing to have their employees come in and get that same model right behind the Medicare population. So you're seeing a new kind of partnership between the private and the public payers around shaping the care models that we think are going to produce value. And again, I would say the, the cautionary note here for you all is to say a company like Boeing wasn't sitting around idle one day and had a bright idea. They were desperate to manage the costs of these very sick people. And they were not getting the answers brought to them by the medical system or by the insurance companies. They went out and figured it out themselves and built it themselves in partnership with very good clinicians and, and service providers. So if you don't want to be on the receiving end of that, you want to be ahead of that curve and proposing the new models of care that can achieve results that are on this slide. Bundled payments. Uh, Walmart announced this last October. Uh, and it follows on the heels of something the Lowe's company, the home improvement stores have done, and Boeing itself has actually also done this. PepsiCo has done the same thing. And they basically said, we're not getting great care in our community hospitals. We're going to go out, and for cardiac procedures and spine procedures, we're going to go out ourselves, and they literally did it themselves with the Walmart employee staff, went out and visited hospitals around the country and found six hospitals that they believe will give them episode bundled payment care, at, with quality reporting requirements imposed by the purchaser at a pre-arranged price. And that, uh, it's a travel surgery program. They're giving an incentive to the employee. If the employee wants to go to the local hospital, they can. But if I'm a Walmart employee over here in Richmond or someplace and I need to get back surgery or heart surgery, I can take advantage of going to Cleveland Clinic or Virginia Mason and get very high-quality care um, at a predictable price. They'll fly the family. They'll fly me. They'll do the whole thing. They'll coordinate the follow-up care when I come back to my home community. Um, and interestingly, when Walmart did this, despite their reputation, they didn't try to cut a great price deal. What they discovered immediately was two things. One, cl uh, close to half the people they sent off for these recommended treatments didn't really need those treatments when they got to the right centers who knew how to evaluate appropriateness. So they saved a lot of money on inappropriate care not being performed in some of these areas that are notorious for inappropriate care. And secondly, they discovered that when it's done right the first time by a high-quality center, the rate of readmissions, revisions, complications was so much lower, they saved a lot of money on post-treatment treatment that more than made up for paying a good price on the initial deal. So... It's not that these companies are trying to skimp and nickel and dime their provider partners. They're saying, we will bring lives to you if you will deliver us guaranteed high-quality care 
that you're going to be responsible and accountable for and show us your quality data. We want those kinds of relationships. And a number of our companies are now exploring the same kind of program to find high-quality partners, believing that will ultimately save them money. Um, appropriateness, I mentioned in passing. We've been working in, in two programs, and I think Kate Chenock may still be here, who's been leading these programs for us. Uh, one is the California Joint Replacement Registry, and another is a partnership with the California Maternal Data Center. And in both of these areas, there's a very benign professional improvement opportunity for, like any clinical registry, giving good feedback to the doctors and hospitals that participate. But the deal we struck with the Joint Replacement Registry, we, the purchasers, was we will work with you collaboratively to form this uh, registry. We will encourage the surgeons to be a majority vote on the steering committee, and the surgeons will decide what's right and what's wrong, what happens, what the risk adjustment formula is going to be. That's up to the docs to do. We trust you and believe in you. But you must agree as a point of participation that the data will become public. The outcomes that you agree are the legitimate outcomes, properly risk-adjusted, will become public. And that's the price of admission to a partnership with the purchasers. And that's been going great, because I think everyone now realizes physician compare, hospital compare, that day is here, and it's better to be on the design team of what should be made public than to be hammered with it five years from now by some group you don't have confidence in. So I think there's a partnership opportunity here, again, between the purchasers and the providers to build these systems that support better decision-making. Uh, one thing just to flag here is that this uh, anthem, uh, Aldo was here earlier, in, in supporting back to the CalPERS program I mentioned earlier, which was a price program, do a hip or a knee for less than $30,000, they are now also highlighting here in yellow the hospitals that are in the registry. So they're saying to the employees, yes, you can go to any of the hospitals on this list, but if you go to the ones in yellow, they are accountable for their quality. And hopefully in the next year or two, we will also show their quality results their functional outcome scores, their pain relief, their complication rates, their revision rates, alongside the yellow highlight. So this is part of a program to create transparency and accountability associated with what's already in place as a cost program, if you like, that CalPERS has put out. And Blue Shield has done the same thing now. They announced to their 200 or so hospitals that do these kinds of procedures. If you want to remain a Blue Shield center of distinction, you better consider getting into the California Joint Replacement Registry. So we have a partnership between the purchaser the plan, and the providers marching toward a shared transparency and accountability around this particular specialty procedure. I think I'll skip over that and just jump into redesign. I mentioned the Boeing work to the intensive outpatient care program. And I just flag for you here that here's half a dozen ways that the employers, oddly enough, are getting their hands dirty in redesigning what care is, what providers do. So California Quality Collaborative has been around for a number of years. A number of you are, I see Neil's over here, very involved in that. Um, and to the question raised in the last panel of the plans, what do you guys do together? This is one of those answers. The plans jointly fund and support this quality collaborative, partly because the medical groups came back and said, you know, you're making us crazy. Anthem has one diabetes protocol. HealthNet has a different diabetes protocol. Could you guys all agree on what we're supposed to do to make you happy? And the plan said, yeah, we'll create a collaborative which will work on common quality improvement opportunities and then hold programs to help you learn from each other and learn from national experts in how to improve diabetes care, how to reduce readmissions, how to improve transitions in care. So the Quality Collaborative has been a planned-sponsored effort at raising all boats. And actually, one of the areas they focused was Inland Empire because there was a sense that those low-income communities didn't have the resources to do quality improvement the way a, a much better resource community or hospital might. Um, I think I'll skip through the rest of these, except to the bottom. I will say that our members are... Um, surprisingly energetic at building their own care models. So the level of frustration I've already shared with you is very, very high. And almost all the companies at PBGH are doing something themselves to build their own care system. And it could be building it out on top of a pharmacy they already have. It could be an on-site clinic they already have. It could be a telehealth services model they already have. Um, the bundle payment thing I gave you the example of. There's all kinds of ways of doing it, but they're all doing it. And that's, again, a symptom that you should be alert to that they are very disappointed in what the healthcare system is doing to modernize and improve outcomes at an affordable price. Uh, the last thing I'll just mention is policy work, just so you know that we spend a lot of effort there. We have a wonderful alliance with consumer and labor groups called the Consumer Purchaser Disclosure Project, which is a national group based in Washington and here. 
And what we do is work together on issues of value and quality. And we go to CMS, and we go to Washington, we go to the White House, and we sort of we pound the table. And the reason we do that is what happens if you're at CMS, if you're at Medicare, all day long there is a line of people from the medical societies and the hospital association and the nutritionists and the social workers and every other interest group who Medicare ultimately funds expressing what they need to have happen in the regulatory and payment and coverage world. And very rarely are we the people ever at that table. Consumers, patients, they don't go to Washington and stand outside of, outside of CMS and talk about what they need. So the Consumer Purchaser Disclosure Group is basically a place to come together and say, do we agree, we the purchasers who pay the bills and we the patients who receive the care, do we agree about some of the things that what makes value? And if we do, let's go talk to Congress and the White House about that. So this group has been very active and very successful in representing that view. We've been recently collaborating with some other partners in something called the Partnership for Sustainable Healthcare, and that includes the insurance plans, who we have a sometimes on, sometimes off relationship with, includes Families USA, which is a large consumer activist group, very involved in Enroll America and other coverage issues, and labor unions, also very active in Families USA. Ascension Health System, a large uh, Catholic healthcare system based in the Midwest. The National Coalition on Healthcare, which is a coalition of other groups, device makers, professional societies, uh, other associations, consumer and labor groups. So all of us have been working together to develop a policy agenda that we can all support. And I think the important thing about this partnership group is it's actually a very hopeful sign that all these groups agree about most of the key things that should happen next. So we are trying to build a new consensus on cost containment and health reform, which will build on what's already in the Affordable Care Act. It's not to dis dispute it, but to go further in creating a more sustainable and affordable health care system. And it's really around those two pillars I talked about earlier, payment reform of providers and changes in how consumers have information and incentives to choose care. Um, I won't go through this in any detail. You get a flavor. A lot of it's around measuring and transparency. Um, payment reform in terms of both the public payment programs and what the plans do on the private side. Um, encouraging movement toward delivery system reform and a few other things. So this is a sort of a credo, it's very crude, that the employers have been talking about of what they think their role needs to be. They want to encourage their employees to get high, seek out high-quality, efficient care. They want to demand transparency from everybody who manages the care system. They want to sustain a competitive private sector health care system. That's their goal, but I wouldn't say it's by any means guaranteed. And they want the government to be a partner, whether it's through Covered California or through Medi-Cal or through CMS. They want to work closely in sending a common signal to the American public and the health industry about what it is we're looking for. And I just wanted to conclude with a few things I think that are really hopefully mostly reflected in what I've already said, opportunities that the UC system and the purchasers in California really can strengthen their working relationship. So one is, as we are thirsty for these bundled payment, episode payment, and global payment models, bring them to us. We're open. The door's open. If you come in and say, we'd like to contract for this bundle at this price with these quality standards, that's a great conversation for us to have. Secondly, internally, implement faster than we do the measurement and feedback systems that we are going to be demanding of you pretty soon. So frankly, it shouldn't have taken us to implement the California Joint Replacement Registry. Uh, I will give credit to Kaiser. Kaiser's had a wonderful joint replacement registry for many years. They were ahead of the curve in measuring and improving to achieve targets in managing that particular procedure. And I think hopefully the UC system will have the same mindset. Let's be the first on our block to systematically measure and reward performance in areas that are important to the public and to the purchasers and the consumers. So that goes to the third point. When on the public side, actively participate in registries and public reporting programs. I've often encouraged academic medical centers, for whom I have enormous regard, to be the first to say, here's our data. We are so proud of how well we do cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, complex illness management. Let's be the ones to publish the best data on that and demand the rest of the community meet us where we are, and we'll try to keep doing better. I'll say one interesting little footnote to that Walmart um, bundled payment project that I think is just fascinating. Those six clinics, Virginia Mason, Cleveland Clinic, and so on, who they brought together, Walmart brought together to be part of that network of providers the first thing those six hospitals did was say, let's form a quality collaborative so we can learn from each other. If we are now the best, let's get better and not let anybody else, in effect, catch up to us. So they are meeting as a quality collaborative to trade best practices among those six centers to get even better than the rest of us. So if that mindset would take root, we would be thrilled that the, all the centers want to collaborate to drive improvement. 
um, support redesign initiatives, including rethinking deployment of professionals and technology. Uh, we believe that the redesign opportunities will be in redeploying, in challenging scope of practice legislation, for example, using people so they can practice to the maximum, to the top of their license, using new technologies, whether remote or handheld or whatever it is, to the maximum degree like every other industry is doing, and really drive that kind of transformational innovation. Focus on the patient and on engaging the patient in their own lives and their own decision-making. And then finally, be a partner with us in advocating for public policy where we can agree. If we're going to CMS or to the White House and talking about some of these issues, for example, accelerating payment change, it would be ideal to be able to go with you hand-in-hand in hand and make that same argument that the leading provider organizations in the country want the same kinds of changes that we do. The conversation we've had with Ascension Health was really very positive in that regard. So those are some of the things I hope we can do together, and I'll, I'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Joe, Joe Antonini from UC Davis. I'm interested in your, uh, to, if you could uh, elaborate on the link of cost and quality. It's easy to measure costs from your perspective in terms of the bills that come in, but trying to measure quality is, is difficult. Uh, these registries certainly help, but... Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, variability in the, the quality of the quality data. <laughs> so how do you address that from your perspective, and what do you think is the gold standard for, for, for this? I'd say there are multiple, obviously multiple ways to measure quality and multiple reasons to measure quality. And one of our feelings is it doesn't need to be a one-size-fits-all answer. That is, you may have, within the clinical enterprise, very important reasons to measure quality. You want to measure a lot of processes. You want to improve them. You want to increase, re reduce variation, increase reliability, reward performance, variety of things you want to do to measure quality. That's great. We don't, frankly, care about most of that. So the vast number of hundreds of quality measures that come through NQF or PCPI or other processes are fine, and we would bless you for doing that, but we don't care what the measures are. We want to know, do people get better? Are their outcomes good? Is their patient experience good? And is the cost reasonable for the value we're getting. And so I would like to see a kind of a triage of the quality measurement enterprise where the things that matter to the public, those who pay the bills, those who receive the care, the family members, um, are things that in the, in the case of total joint replacement, how long does it take to walk again? How well was the pain relieved? What level of complications and sequelae were associated with the treatment? Whether there was a need for reoperation or revision? That's a pretty short list. There's a hundred other orthopedic measures that are interesting and people in that program would need to look at, but we don't have much interest in them. Hi, David. It's Jeff Belcora at UCSF. I have a question uh, related to this, uh, really about pay for performance. And, you know, uh, my reading of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was that quality is qualitative, and that's why it's called quality. So whenever we measure, and I think we've, we're having this experience in education, uh, we end up with measurements and, and uh, teaching to the test and a focus, a myopic focus on the, measure, the outcome measured and the metric itself. And so when you pay for performance, how do you avoid that? Or how do you, I don't know, how do you, how do you, how do you kind of keep the focus on quality as a sort of intrinsic motivator? Uh, it, can you? And, and are we learning anything? Two-part question, I guess. One is, how does that work? You know, how do we do that? And are we learning anything from um, the experience in education, which seems to me has had a very similar path with cost and outcomes and measurement and all that? Well, I don't, I, I don't think we know the answers. Even whatever uh, hubris we may have had about that question years ago, I don't think we feel right now. I think we perpetuating the, the approach we're, having, we're using today doesn't feel right to us. More process measures by more specialties and so on is not sensible. Um, interestingly, the emergence of electronic health records as a platform for acquiring data in the clinical environment has also opened the door to new ways of thinking about the question you're raising. What is it we should be measuring over what span of patient experience, over what span of settings of care? How do we integrate that and uh, infer some useful information from it? So the good news is we're not just turning the crank one more time. We're thinking about it in new ways. Uh, I don't think uh, my... I always bring it back to the bottom line question. We all get asked by our neighbors and friends and coworkers every day, I have this problem, who should I go see? So we need to answer that question. There is no non-answer to that question. People are going to go see someone. The question is, can you improve the signal that helps them make that decision a little bit? And I've always, for example, objected to using the clinical trials evidence criteria, you know, 0.05 standard 
for signaling to a patient, maybe you should see Dr. Jones instead of Dr. Smith, that should not be based on the same standard of patient safety or efficacy even because it's a decision we're going to make in the next five minutes. And if I can help someone make a better decision with a little bit of information, I'd like to do that. So I do think we have to rethink the whole paradigm, and your, your points are valid. Hi, Ning Tang at UCSF. Um, I'm going to continue along with the questions about measuring quality. Okay. Uh, I am currently responsible for measuring outpatient quality at UCSF. And uh, I think it's clear to many of us in the quality measurement world that we're getting to the point where we're going to have to measure quality at the level of the individual physician. And uh, being amongst all of the academic medical centers, there is this concern, right or wrong, or how much of it is true, that as academic medical centers, tertiary, quaternary care centers, we take care of sicker patients, patients that may be turned down by physicians in the community. So there's this concern that if we're releasing data on individual providers, that our information may look worse because we are taking care of a sicker, higher risk population of patients. So on one hand, I was hoping to get your thoughts on how we might be able to adjust for that data appropriately or help the public understand the population of patients that we serve. And on the other hand, um, you had just mentioned some of the outcome measures that patients are interested in as it relates to joint replacement. Those, I think, are great measures, but CMS uh, through PQRS uh, is asking, for us, asking from us a totally different set of measures. So how do we as providers respond to all of the needs coming at us from the stakeholders? First, I am sympathetic to the fact that you have a lot of needs coming at you. I think it's, we have created an unfair nightmare of a torrential fall of measurement expectations that is not realistic for you. Uh, so I do think the burden is on us to synchronize our requests into something that's valuable to us and fair to you. So that comes to your first point about the fairness. Um, you know, the risk adjustment is the shorthand answer to that. I don't think it's a great answer. I think risk stratification is often a better answer to find common populations being treated by different providers and evaluate whether one group of providers is doing better than another for that population. There was a huge furor in England when they did the um, patient-reported outcome measures for hip and knee replacement and two other procedures. And the surgeons, particularly the orthopedic surgeons, felt like it was totally failed to deal with the risk adjustment issue. So it lost credibility with the surgeons there. On the other hand, that created an opportunity for people to sit down together and do it better. So I think exposing the problem is not a bad thing. Attaching too high stakes to it too early could be a bad thing. It could discourage participation. Um, and the other caveat is we've always been very concerned when people use risk adjustment as an excuse not to fully serve a population that needs service. So if you, know, if you have a population of people who are primarily Spanish-speaking and you don't do good translation and good materials and good patient education in Spanish and they get worse results, should you be let off the hook for that? No. So we need to have a, a realistic balance between risk adjustment and accountability. Um, so I don't think there's not a glib answer to the question. I think it takes a lot more work. I don't think it's intractable. And again, ultimately, people are going to have to choose whether to go to hospital X or hospital Y. How can we give them enough information to make a better decision? Jeannie Meyer, UCLA. Um, I'm not sure if this is the best question for you or for our previous distinguished panel, but I work in palliative care, and for some of our end-stage patients, I've heard a gentleman refusing pain medication because he was the only one providing insurance for his family. And he, even though he recognized he was dying, he wanted to work as long as possible. Another gentleman told me that he hopes he dies before his COBRA runs out. And he was very serious about that. And I've also seen a patient recently who was in tears because the closest nursing home that her insurance would cover for her husband was 30 miles away, which in Los Angeles may as well be at the other end of the world. I don't know if you have any answers or not, and I realize that it's probably difficult for the companies um, to cover employees who are no longer able to be fully productive, yeah. but there has to be a better way that we can provide end-of-life care for some of these people. So, as you heard my opening comments, I'm 100% in agreement with that. Um, I'm sorry about your mom. Oh, yeah, <laughs> thanks. The, um, and I don't have a great answer to the availability of good resources or coverage in, let's say, end-of-life circumstances. Um, but I would say 
back to the main theme of both the last couple panels, if we don't get on top of the broader affordability problem, we'd never get around to solving specific challenges like that. Because you see people, as you say, ratcheting down the narrow networks or ratcheting down the coverage availability of certain services because there aren't enough dollars left. So where they decide to put those dollars becomes a discretionary choice. You know, I often use the example, a typical Safeway clerk, a third of their total compensation is now going to us instead of to them, their family, and their needs, other needs they have in their lives. So, I think, Neil? Neil Solomon, Blue Shield. Uh, first of all, thanks for the call out on the California Quality Collaborative. Uh, that was very nice of you. That's a, a multi-stakeholder, statewide, long-standing uh, collaborative among delivery systems that many UC uh, delivery systems could take advantage of. Um, but the question I have for you, David, has to do with um, what you expect will be the prevailing model of payment in the future and the prevailing delivery system. On the one hand, part of your comments was about innovative models that coordinate care effectively. That kind of sounds HMO-ish to me. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of the large employers are definitely moving towards self-insurance, especially with some tax advantages that come uh, through that. So I'm curious, there's sort of uh, competing directions. And uh, you have probably the best idea of where those large employers are likely to be in the next few years. Absolutely. So maybe you could share some of that with us. Absolutely. Uh, pluralism. Uh, we don't know. There's a... Uh, I mean, actually, Ian Morrison, many of you may know, does a lot of consulting with us. He has just posited that there are two ideologically different schools of thought today. There is a lot of our members believe in the shopping experience. Atomistic consumers, money in their hands, a provider directory, PPO, they go out there and they figure, or CDHP, they pick their own doctors, their own hospitals to their own preferences, and they build their own little network. That's the, and a lot of our companies, because they are Safeway and Walmart, they believe in shopping as the way Americans do things. So that's, that's the model. The other model is the ACO Kaiser integrated care model, where some management entity brings together a lot of expertise and talent and IT, and they really coordinate care in a proactive way. And, they, and you write a prepaid annual monthly premium to them, and they really bring the right resources to bear for your health. We have both. And we're going to have a lot of things in the middle, ACOs and episodes and all kinds of stuff. So I think we have an experiment for the next five years or so to see whether any blend of these works best. But it is a huge country with hugely diverse needs and resources. What happens in the Bay Area is very different than what happens in Mississippi. And trying to prescribe a particular solution, I don't think our members actually have agreement about the right answer to your question. Thank you, so Thank You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.